0: Well, I invite you to open uh, your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 5 through 7 this morning, and the title I've given to this passage is to pursue godliness with diligence, and I think that's the emphasis of Peter in this passage. So let me start reading. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, Godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly love. And in your brotherly love, I'm sorry, brotherly kindness is the New American Standard. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So notice that within this passage, Peter is exhorting these believers to pursue after virtue and godliness with diligence. And I think the main uh, struggle that we have is that as Christians, we have a tendency to become idle and lazy in our Christian lives. Peter is exhorting us to exert effort with diligence to increase our faith with seven virtues that need to be added to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to study this is for you to personally put yourself in the passage and examine yourself individually and how we measure up to these virtues. This is not just a list for us to study and say, okay, you know, well, that's kind of the Christian life. No, how am I doing personally in these seven virtues? They should describe me. And they should describe all of us. That's what Peter wants in writing this to his readers. You see, the Christian life is not to be some initial spasm of powerful experience or religious fervor followed by chronic inactivity. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to be one where yeah, we are regenerated. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then we start growing. We start serving. We start growing in our relationship with the Lord. And our life reveals that and shows it. There should be growth. There should be progress. If a little baby is born but never starts to grow, something's wrong. Something's terribly wrong. And if we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're born into the family of God, but we're not growing spiritually, something is wrong. Something is terribly wrong. Justification should be followed by sanctification. A measure of it, though it will vary. Faith without works is dead. James tells us. So we need to look at this passage this morning. And let's begin by seeing what Peter says to us under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit that is guiding him in every single word that he writes. He starts out using, the uh, again, the New American Standard. He says, Now for this reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. I want to start out by, notice he says, for this reason also. So he's connecting this passage to the previous passage. And if you look at below where I've summarized the previous passage, verses 3 and 4, he basically says that because Christ has given us everything we need for godliness and for life, Therefore, because God has <clears throat> already provided everything we need, then pursue after godliness. He's equipped us with all we need to live the Christian life. He says in verse 3 and 4. He's given us His promises. He's Everything pertaining to life and godliness, He has granted to us. Therefore, based upon His grace and His gift, pursue godliness i think that's kind of the connection that he's making now notice he says also in verse 5 that for this reason applying all diligence it's going to require effort it's going to require discipline and diligence applying all diligence This is stressing, make every effort, do your best, do it with zeal, seek the grace of God, but applying all diligence, then supply these seven virtues to your life. Being passive or lazy in the Christian life will never produce godliness. And growing godliness is like growing a garden. What happens to the garden? Most of us this spring will... Well, I say not, no, most some of us this spring will try to grow a garden. So what happens when you start your garden, you get a planted, and then you neglect it? Well, then it looks like my garden every year. But if you let the weeds grow and the grass infiltrate, you never prune it, you never water it, you don't do anything like that, what's going to happen? That's right. It will die. It will not... Produce fruit. It's wasted effort. That initial spasm, but no growth. So what we need to do is to recognize, as Peter is stressing here, that this is requiring diligence. We need to be diligent. Proverbs says, the precious possession of a man is diligence. In your Christian life, you need diligence. You need to apply all diligence. Because otherwise, we won't grow in these And these virtues that he's listing for us. Notice what he says in addition to that. He says, Now for this very purpose, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence. So notice he doesn't say supply your faith. You've already got that faith. In fact, Peter has already said that God has given you faith, it's a gift of God. If you connect it back to verse 1, the faith here, in verse 1 we are told that we have received a faith as the same kind as ours. And that word received, if you remember when we were in verse 1, means to receive something by the drawing of lots. That's what the word literally refers to. And that is biblical language for receiving something by God's sovereign choice. When they wanted to replace... Judas, Peter said, let's draw lots. They drew lots because they wanted to know who God had chosen to replace Judas. Because they believed that the drawing of lots was not up to luck or random anything like that. Chance? No. It was under the sovereign control of God. So it was God's choice that the lot determined. So Peter's already told them that their faith they have received by the drawing of lots. I.e., God has chosen you by a sovereign grace to give you that faith. So you already have the faith. So we don't supply faith. Faith has already been given. Now our faith can grow for sure. But he's not saying you diligently supply your faith as if faith comes from us. It does not come from us. It comes from God. It's a gift of God. Our old heart could not produce faith anyway. The Scriptures tell us, Ezekiel 36 tells us, that we're born into this world and our spiritual heart is a heart of stone. It is a rock-hard, dead, lifeless, stone heart. And because there's no life in it, it doesn't respond to God. Actually, it responds, but it's an animosity and enmity towards God faith and submission to Jesus Christ will never come out of that stony heart. It's impossible. It's dead. Lazarus cannot raise himself. He's dead. Neither can the heart. So before we come to faith in Christ, God must first do that incredibly miraculous heart transplant surgery in you. He must take out that heart of stone Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, put in a heart of flesh, a heart that's alive, a heart that is sensitive to sin, and cries out in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. That is the miracle work of God to do that. This old heart cannot. Nothing good can come from it. That's why the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. That old heart cannot produce the eyes of God. So the only solution is to change it out. And since we can't do it, God must do it. But when He does, we become a new creature in Christ. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're a new man. We're spiritually alive. And this is why we're able now to pursue with diligence these virtues. Because our heart has been changed by God's grace. So that faith... He says, in your faith, supply these seven virtues. So faith, God-given faith, is the root that produces the fruit. So Peter again is stressing to them, you've been given faith already, so now add these virtues to your faith. So in your faith that you already have, now supply these virtues. And the word supply emphasizes to add, to supply abundantly. So we need to pursue these things with great energy, with great desire to grow in them. So that our now living faith is not on its own, it's still connected to that Divinely implanted life that the Lord has given to each believer. So, just stopping here for a moment. The uh, the thing I want to emphasize is that the Christian life is 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 an active life. It's not passive. And in this sense, there's no hint of hyper Calvinism in the gospel or in the Word of God. Hyper Calvinism says, "Well, if God has Sovereignly ordained and predestined everything. He's predestined who's going to be saved. He's predestined the events of life. He's predestined circumstances. He's he's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, why do I need to do anything if God has already predestined it all? That logic is unbiblical. That logic will send you down a wrong path. Because what we have in the Word of God is yes, God has foreordained all things that comes to pass. Ephesians one, eleven, That He works all things after the counsel of His will. That He's totally sovereign over everything. A, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the will of our God. That God even predestined the very evil wickedness that sent Christ to the cross. It was all a part of His plan and out of it He brought good. But that theology, which is very biblical, does not conclude and result in you and me saying, well then, hey, there's nothing for me to do. The Bible teaches God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Both of those are truths that are presented within the Word of God. But grace always precedes effort. We can't produce the effort on our own. We need the grace of God. But God's grace does not cancel out strenuous moral effort. I like the illustration that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave. He said, you're given a farm. Imagine this. Okay, you're given a farm. You're given all the tractors, all the equipment, everything you need to operate that farm. You're also given the seed to plant in the ground. All that's given to you by the grace of God. He's given you everything you need. And then God tells you, now farm. Take everything that I've given to you and farm. And that's the idea of the sovereignty of God that's given everything. But our responsibility to respond to that as well And Scripture is emphatic that both are true. We've been given everything we need to farm. God now says, farm. Obey me. Farm. But even if you farm with God's farm and God's tractors and God's seed, you're not guaranteed a harvest because the Scripture goes on to say it's God who gives the increase. It's God who gives the growth. So the farmer may plow the ground and plant the seed, but if God doesn't give the rain, if God doesn't give the sunshine, if God doesn't give the blessing for growth, then there will be no growth and no harvest and no increase. God gives the harvest, yet we're involved in the farming. Scripture says farm. Even though ultimately, even the crop is there by the grace of God. This is the same really in the Christian life. Grace precedes effort. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. That's your responsibility. Now here's the reason why you can do that, Paul says in verse 13, because God is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure both the willing of it and the actual doing of it is what God is working within us. That's why we can work out because God is working in continually that grace. So you see, sovereignty and responsibility. And Peter's main focus right now is on responsibility. That he wants us to, with diligence, apply in our faith And supply these seven virtues to follow. So when you look at these seven virtues here. Let's see, let me get caught up. When you look at these seven virtues that are laid out for us in 5, 6, and 7. You can analyze them in different ways you probably don't have to press a real super spiritual logical order in them in the sense that one you have to have one before you can go on to the next one. They're a conglomeration that the Spirit has given to us. Um, but these virtues all provide a certain beauty and balance in the Christian life, and they all kind of reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So in pursuing these seven virtues, really what Peter wants is for us to just become more like the Savior. So let's walk through those. So he says, in your faith, supply moral excellence or virtue, some Bibles, may, some translations may have. This suggests that the Lord wants our character to be a character that's worthy of praise worthy of excellence and it's an exceptional character. It's the very same word that's used in verse 3 of God. God by His glory and excellence called us to Jesus Christ. It's the same word. So now as we are to reflect the glory of God, God possesses excellence in infinite measure. We can only reflect in a very small Finite way, but we are to strive for moral excellence in our life. Christians should pursue excellence in everything we do. On your work, your job, whatever activities you're involved in, this excellence applies to that as well. Don't do anything haphazardly. As Scripture tells us, do your work as unto the Lord rather than for men. Do it in serving Jesus Christ so you do the best you can. But the excellence also involves the moral realm as well. The moral realm where we need to be fighting our sin. And and a lot of this comes back to our thought life. Bringing our thinking in line with the Lord. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8, if there is any excellence, same word, If anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. So if you want a moral excellence in your character, then you need to diligently control your thoughts. Bring them in line. Repent when they start going astray. It's an ongoing process. Fight your sin diligently. Try to bring it back in line with the Word of God whenever you sense it straying. Strive to control your tongue, your anger, your impatience with your spouse. When you're tempted to lash out and say something, strive for moral excellence. Live above that. Control it. Pray for a greater sensitivity to sin. So in your faith, believer, child of God, supply Excellence, supply moral excellence. Strive for it. We'll never attain perfection or sinlessness in this life. But strive for it. And then he adds to that knowledge in verse 5. Knowledge or insight or understanding primarily of God's will for us. And where do we find God's will for us? We find it in God's Word. So to your moral excellence supply, in addition, knowledge. Knowledge of the Word of God. Knowledge of doctrine. Knowledge of theology. Knowledge of truth. And how all of that should change our life to make us more like Christ. It's a knowledge of what God requires of us. Remember Micah 6.8. What does God require of you and me? But to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly before our God. This knowledge is important. Peter wants you to grow in knowledge. Knowledge of the Word of God. It's interesting, he'll close out this letter saying, Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That knowledge is important to Peter. William Gurnall, an old Puritan that uh, wrote an amazing commentary on Ephesians 6, the armor of God, said, knowledge acts like the headlights for moral excellence. It enables one to pursue what is truly virtuous and not be deceived by worldly imitations. So you're pursuing moral excellence. Okay, I'm going to give. I'm going to give to charity. Knowledge will protect you from giving to a charity that has a false gospel in it, for example. You're pursuing moral excellence and trying to walk humbly before God, but knowledge of truth will help protect you from that false humility which is really pride masquerading as humility. That takes knowledge. We're all immersed in a culture of basically pagan idolatry similar to Paul in Athens. But how do you respond to that culture? Well, knowledge enabled Paul to respond in a way that promoted the Gospel and protected him in his zeal from responding in some way that might undermine the Gospel. All that comes with knowledge. Now, part of what Peter is doing is setting this up because later on he's going to critique the false teachers who have a false knowledge. Their knowledge is defective and distorted and deceitful. It's a counterfeit knowledge which ends up being a sham, it's, it's a phony, it's poison to the soul. And the cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge. It's more true knowledge that's in harmony with God's Word and God's moral standards. Remember, Christ prayed for us in John 17. He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. And our knowledge seeks to understand that truth and the sanctifying implications of it. Our moral excellence must be guided by knowledge which comes from the Word of God. Because religious zeal without knowledge accomplishes very little. It can even be harmful. Peter knew this. Remember Peter? Lord, should we not build three tabernacles? One for You, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Oh man, that was an embarrassing moment. He didn't have knowledge. It impacted his worship. It divided his worship, his allegiance. So we need knowledge. It's extremely important for you to be growing in knowledge of the Word of God. It's vital. To that, Peter adds self control in verse 6. To your knowledge, supply or add self control. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Self-control refers to a self-restraint in the inner man to control one's own desires and cravings and actions. It's the ability to say no to the passions of the flesh, to ungodly desires, to idolatry of materialism. And every believer, all of us need to grow in self-control. We need to be watchful over ourselves. Because like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to want. we need to be watchful. We need to be under self-control to prevent us from going astray. See, as believers, even though we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit, we still have the flesh. We have its impulses. We have its desires, its lusts, its passions. That comes from the old nature. And we must be ever ready to bring them down to suppress them. On top of our flesh, we also have Satan. We have the world system that we're in. And in all of this, what Peter is saying, which is a fruit of the Spirit, is you need self-control so your old flesh doesn't burst forth out of you into sin. And all this requires self-control, self-discipline, self-mortification. Our flesh is within us is like a horse that wants to run wild, that wants to run its own way. And self-control puts the bridle on it. Now, I grew up out in the country, and we had two horses. One of them's name was Brownie, and the other one's name was Shorty. I don't know how they got their names. Shorty was not a short horse. She was a normal-sized horse, but sometimes as a kid, I I would ride Shorty. And I'd put a saddle on her and put a bridle bit in her mouth and get on her. But Shorty never liked to leave the barn. That's the problem. She loved that barn. I mean, that was her happy place. So whenever you got on her, already you're kind of. She's she's a little bit grumpy, and I remember sometimes going out in the pasture, and she would intentionally sometimes jerk her her head forward, and and pull the reins out of my hands. And when she sensed that the reins were out of my hands that horse turned her head like a beeline towards the barn and she ran as fast as she could to get back to the barn. When you have no bridle, you can't control the horse inside your, your soul. That horse of flesh that wants to run wild and wants to run back to the barn of corruption and sin and depravity. And it's always trying to jerk the reins of self-control out of your hands. And that's why we need to continually be watchful and praying, Oh God, give me the grace to control these eruptions in my my life that come from my sin nature. Lord, give me the grace to to bring that under control because I'm not doing a very good job of it. The false teachers, again, you can see kind of how Peter is setting up these seven virtues in contrast to... The failures of the false teachers in chapter 2, they have no self-control. They are given to moral licentiousness, to sensuality, to sinful desires, to adultery. They're enslaved to corruption. That's the false teachers. They want to take you. Peter says, no. In your knowledge, supply self-control. To our self-control, we provide perseverance. Believers need to persevere. You don't turn away. You don't turn back. You don't give up. You persevere in pursuing these virtues. You're not making much headway. You feel like you're stagnant. Maybe even going backwards. Don't give up. Persevere. We need perseverance. Some translations say patience. Believers need to persevere, especially in times of persecution or trials or failure or times of little progress. That's when we want to give up. But the Scriptures say, no, no, no. Pursue diligently. Give it your best to to persevere. And again, this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just us cranking it out because we also ought to be praying all the time, oh God, help me. And grant me that grace to persevere. But perseverance is important. read a story of a man who only had three years of formal education. He failed in business twice. He ran for political office eight times and got defeated. And yet he became the President of the United States. It's Abraham Lincoln. Persevered through a lot. For those of you all that like baseball, It's a baseball player, struck out 1,330 times. (laughs) You think he should have quit a long time ago, but he ended up being the home run king because his name was Babe Ruth. And he didn't give up. Failure after failure after failure, he didn't give up. We need that kind of perseverance. You may be struggling with the sin and you've experienced a failure after a failure after a failure. Do not give up. Double down. Seeking God's grace. Seeking the power of the Word of God in your life to overcome. You fight. You fight the good fight. You persevere against the faults of our flesh. It's easy to persevere when everything's going well in times of prosperity and there's money in the bank and all that good stuff. But how much more challenging is it to persevere when our worldly comforts aren't there, they've been taken away from us? When troubles seem to afflict us and they don't seem to be going away. That's when we're tested in our perseverance. To give up and leave Christ. Go off and try some other religion. The true grace of God, the new birth, will not let you do that. At least not for very long. He'll grant you repentance and bring you back to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is part of our responsibility in your self-control, add perseverance. The Lord said in Matthew 24, verse 13, just talking about the importance of perseverance, says, The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. No perseverance, no paradise. And it's not that perseverance saves us. It doesn't save us. But it's an evidence of those who are saved. They persevere. That's what the Word of God tells us. So if you're struggling, Peter would say, look to the Lord and man up. Or I guess we'd say woman up if you're a woman. But it's not just us cranking it out. God has supplied everything we need for life and godliness. It's there. Look to Him. Cry out to Him persevere and then he adds in verse 6 godliness believers have already been given everything pertaining to life and godliness in verse 3 but Peter goes on to say nevertheless persevere and and strive diligently to grow in godliness godliness refers to it's it's more God-centered which the word suggests, godliness. It's devotion to God. It's a life that reflects holiness that is the result of communion with God. That's godliness. It's a desire to please God. A desire to honor God. A desire to live for God. It's it's that God-centered, Christ-centered focus of our life. And Peter says you strive with diligence you apply yourself to grow godly Godliness is in effect Christ likeness and again the key to godliness like so many of these virtues brings us back to the word of God You want to be like Christ you need to be in the word of God Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says, And when we behold the glory of the Lord in the mirror of the Word of God, we're transformed into the very same image from glory to glory by the Spirit. So godliness comes as the godly Christ who is revealed in Scripture as we gaze upon Him and meditate upon Him, that His godliness changes us into His image. Godliness must go with the perseverance that we've already looked at. Because without that, then if we don't persevere, if we persevere, I should say, without godliness, and we just tough it out, we just bite our lower lip, and we just persevere without godliness, then our perseverance is just a stoic insensitivity. That's not what God wants. He wants us to persevere with godliness. And the godliness won't remove the pain of our suffering or our trial, but it will enable us to trust God and to see His love and to see His plan and to see His goodness in it while we are suffering. Persevering with godliness protects us from a mere moralistic view of life protects us from hypocrisy, that just wants to be outwardly religious from like the teeth outward, but no real godliness in the heart. We need that godliness. Next, Peter says, brotherly love needs to be added to our godliness. This word in the Greek is philadelphia. So it's Philadelphia, the city, the city of brotherly love. That's what the word means. It has a word for love, which is philos in it, that stresses more of the family kind of love, the devotion, the love within a family. Now you got to assume you're in a good family, but it's that kind of love, or a very close friendship kind of love. That's the kind of love that's involved in this particular word. It's a love that's based upon shared likes and dislikes. And all believers are brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, so that brotherly love is something we should strive after. This love shows itself in doing good for one another. That's why Paul says, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the kind of love that should exist within the local church. That we love one another. We care for one another. And, and involved in that meaning includes the idea that we must bear with one another. Bear one another's burdens. And this isn't always easy. We need to forgive others for their offenses or, or their differences. We forgive them or it's not love. And again, this is very challenging. I think it would be good for us to, to read 1 Corinthians 13 frequently just on how we're supposed to show love for one another. This love can often erode because of differences or offenses. And we need to build it back up. So Peter is saying, Add to all these other virtues a healthy dose and measure of brotherly love. This is actually part of what we will be judged by on the judgment day. The Bema Seat judgment of Christ in Matthew 25. When Jesus interrogated the sheep and the goats. And the sheep said, Lord, when did we... See you hungry and feed you and naked and clothe you and imprison and visit you and all these kinds of things. And Jesus said, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of Mine, even the least of them, you did it to Me. I'm not talking about Jewish people. talking about believers. These brothers of Mine, the church, that you did it to Me. And then rewards will be measured out based upon that. Brotherly love is important. Not only today, but for eternity. And then he climaxes with love. Brotherly love employs the word philos. This word is agape. This is the highest form of love, the supreme form of love found in the Bible. It's also the supreme evidence that someone is truly a believer. It's the capstone of the arch of Christian virtue. The very top stone that holds all the other stones in place in the arch really is agape. It's love. This love focuses primarily, it's not so much the love of friendship or the love of family, it's a love that comes from a commitment of my will to another person, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they're like, it's a commitment of my will to do them good, to seek their well-being, regardless of what they've done. This is agape love. This is not a love based on the desirability of the object. It's not a Love based upon anything intrinsically good or valuable in the object. It's not based on anything that we see in the object. In fact, this is a love that comes from God in spite of what He sees in us. It's a commitment of His will, if you will, to do us good. This is the... uh, Basically, the, the love of redeeming love in the New Testament that we sang about earlier. This is that agape love. It's redeeming love. It's the love of God for sinners who we, there was nothing attractive in us to God. We were called ungodly. We were His enemies. And yet He showed His love upon us. That's the love you and I need to have for others. It's a love of of our will committed to their well-being. This is the love we read about in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but He loved us. And, And how did He show that love? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His Son to die for those who are only worthy of eternal condemnation and judgment, He sent His only begotten Son to die for, to save those who did absolutely nothing to deserve it. This agape love is the goal of Christian instruction. Peter says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This love coming at the very end of the list, I think, indicates that Peter wants it to be the capstone, as I said earlier. The supreme virtue we seek after. Paul says, above all these things in Colossians 3, above all these other virtues that he's talked about, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. In First Corinthians thirteen, Paul says, "Now faith and hope and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. So, would people in your family, if they graded you and measured you on a scale of one to ten for love, where would we, where would we land? Without love, you see, we really are nothing." Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love our ministry is nothing. You can have all knowledge and all faith. You're nothing. Our knowledge is nothing. Our sacrifice is nothing if there is no love. Love for the brethren is a mark of being Christ's disciple. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. But it's not restricted to the church. This love is to be for all people. It reaches out to all men everywhere. Seven virtues. Don't just close a book and walk away with it. But take it home and this week pray over it. Pray over those seven virtues and examine your own life and your own heart. And if you're like me, you're going to see lots of areas that need much improvement. And then you pray for grace. You pray for the Lord to give us diligence to be in the Word of God, to take the truth and live it out so our lives are transformed so that we just don't become stagnant. These seven virtues are all aspects of Christian maturity and godliness. They all reflect Christ. And we need to diligently pursue them, each of them, because they're all subject to decay if they're not renewed regularly in our lives. If you look at the seven virtues, there's a beautiful balance and a harmony there. It's like the soprano and alto and tenor and bass and a vocal choir that blends their voices and just brings a fullness and a majesty to the music. And that's what the Lord wants in our lives as well. We need to pursue it. You and I are responsible to diligently seek to become more of these seven virtues. But be encouraged... There is grace to help in time of need. But all of this from Peter's perspective is something that requires time, it requires effort, and it requires a lot of God's grace. But it's there. But we need to seek it. Not haphazardly, but with diligence. So that the music, the alto, the bass, the soprano, of this glorious song that these virtues basically emit can be grown and developed within our life for the glory of God. So may the Lord encourage us, exhort us, and help us to become more like Christ by imitating these virtues. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we thank You, Lord, for... The challenge that Peter gives to each and every one of us here, Lord, to not just live out our Christian lives by shifting into neutral and just letting it roll down the street. But Lord, we need to engage our minds, our hearts, our souls, and shift it into gear and start moving forward with purpose and with greater speed and for Your glory. Lord, we struggle, we forget, we get sidetracked so easily. Lord, we need your grace. But we thank you that you've already told us that you have supplied everything that we need for life and godliness. So, Lord, we look to you as a fountain of all mercy and grace to help us to grow these virtues in us that our lives might be a garden that reflects the sweet fruit of Jesus Christ in our life. And we ask this, Lord, in His name. Amen.